open up there if you'd like. It's way towards the back. And we've been calling this series Homesick because the letter of 1 Peter was written to a group of exiles, people that are far from home. And it was also written to us, for us, because we can all relate to this idea of being a little bit far from home to miss what it's like to have true rest, true peace, and true purpose. We sometimes feel like God is far away and life is a little too short, and that's because we're homesick for heaven. So that's why we're calling that series Homesick, but it made me think uh, about a time in college for me. So I want to take you guys way back to 2017. How old were you in 2017? That's a fun question. I was a freshman in college, freshman at the University of Minnesota, and you know, coming to the U, I didn't quite know what to expect for the difficulty level of college classes. I had heard kind of the spectrum, right? Oh, it's going to be a lot easier than high school, you know. Or, hey, you might have to study big time, you know, it might be kind of difficult. I didn't know exactly what to expect, but there was one class that I knew for sure I was fearful of. Calculus. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, guys, get this. My junior year of high school, of course, I took pre-calculus. My senior year, I took AP statistics. I don't know if anybody else took AP statistics, but it's kind of like taking a year off of math. It wasn't, it didn't feel like deep, stimulating, like math. It was more like world building. But anyway, I like get to a freshman year of the University of Minnesota, and I realize that I need to take calculus. And so I'm a little nervous because I'm like feeling a little rusty on my math. And so I walk in to my first class. And guys, I was nervous, but I was hoping that I would meet somebody, that I would sit next to somebody that was very confident, you know, that they could help me out a little bit. But I sit next to this dude, and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? You like ready for this class? He's like, no. And I'm like, shoot. Okay, this is going to be tough. But then we sit down, and I learned two things really quickly about calculus, about my first calculus class. Because the teacher, he was from France, and he had this, like, super intense accent. So this guy starts introducing himself and talking through some of the content. And I'm not kidding, guys. I could not understand a word that he was saying. So I was like, shoot. So I was looking at this guy next to me. He was like, dude, do you know what he's saying? He's like, I don't know. And then that was the first thing I learned, that this is going to be tough because the professor is French. The second thing I learned was I was not comforted by what he started to write on the board. I thought, you know, if I can't understand what he's speaking about, maybe I'll understand what he's writing about. But he started to write a bunch of letters and stuff, and I'm a year rusty in math. And I was not comforted at all. So the second thing I learned was pre-calculus, two years prior, did not prepare me for calculus. So I was scared. I spent the entire class kind of like scanning the room, trying to see if anybody else was also really confused. And I looked over at my guy that I was sitting next to, and he was just like writing stuff the whole time. So I asked him, I was like, dude, what are you writing down? He's like, I don't know. I'm just like trying to pay attention. And so I just kind of felt lost, felt like I was losing at school, felt like I was going to be a failure in my college classes and was hoping that this was not the trajectory for the rest of my life. Here's what happened. I walked out of that class. I called my mom. I said, can I drop out? And she said, no, honey, you're going to be okay. But she said, go to your guidance counselor. I went to my guidance counselor. He said, you don't actually need to take calculus. I said, great. So I dropped that class, and I never entered that building again. That is a true story. I have never taken calculus. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And I did graduate. Thank you. Yes, I did graduate. Guys, when I was sitting in that classroom, 
I legitimately felt like, am I a failure? Am I losing at life? Am I losing at being a college student? Is this going to set me up for a life of failure? And I don't know about you. I don't know if you've had to drop out of a class. I don't know if you've had to drop out of school because you felt like it was a little overwhelming. But I do think that pretty much everybody in this room has asked a similar question. Am I losing? Am I a failure? Am I cut out for this? Like, am I supposed to succeed more than I am right now? Am I being a good enough student? Am I being a good enough boyfriend or girlfriend? Am I being a good enough employee? Am I being a good enough Christian? Sometimes it just feels like we're losing. Why is that? We're going to look at a part of 1 Peter chapter 2 that gives us a little clue into what's going on. Peter makes the argument that there is a war going on for your soul. That maybe the reason you feel like you're losing is because you're in the middle of a battle. And it's not superficial. I put a weird pause in there, superficial. It's not superficial. It is a deep soul-level war. Let's look at verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're in the middle of a soul war. But what does it mean that the passions of the flesh are waging war at us? Like, what is... What does it mean when he's talking about the flesh? When you're reading your Bible and you see the word flesh, it could mean one of two things. One, it could mean the body, flesh and bone, right? And there's something really pure about that. There's good things associated with that, right? Like there's a lot of desires. There's passions of the flesh. Sorry, there's like desires of the flesh that are good to eat, to drink, to sleep, right? There's nothing evil associated with that. But the second part, the second way you can read flesh is that it's the rebellious nature. That the flesh is actually no God, no Holy Spirit like helping you make good decisions. This is the flesh, the carnal humanity. It's evil. It's desires are disconnected from God. And that's what 1 Peter is talking about here when it says flesh. That the passions of the flesh are waging war against you. These are all the thoughts that are disconnected from God. These are all the thoughts that are apart from his design for your life. The ones saying like, man, I don't really care about what God says. I kind of want to be satisfied by myself, kind of want to pursue this my own way. This is a part of being human. Each one of us experiences these types of desires. And Peter is saying that we're in a constant battle with the thought that I would be a better God, that I want to rule my own life, that I want to figure all this out by myself. 
It's part of being human. It's the thing that starts to ask, hey, what if a life apart from God is actually better for me? But here's what we find every time. Every time that we act upon those desires, what we see is that a soul that is disconnected from God, acting upon desires that are disconnected from his plan and his design for your life, is that it starves the soul. Because you were meant to be connected with God. You were meant to have an intimate relationship with him. And yet we don't want that. Even though that's what we were made for, we want to kind of push that away and live life our own way. And our souls are starving. We were meant to be fed by God, nourished by him, meant to be totally satisfied by him. But we kind of push that aside. We don't want that. Constantly entertaining the idea that a life apart from God would be better for me. I kind of want to do relationships my own way. Want to have total sexual freedom. Want to be able to use my money my own way. Want to be able to use my time my own way. These become incredibly strong desires, right? Feeling like we got to act on these in the moment. But here's the truth, Saul Company. Your strongest desire is not always your deepest desire. The thing that you want most in that moment is not always what you most need. And when you act upon desires that are separate from God, it starves the soul. This is the war that's going on. A war between two thoughts. One that says, I want to be disconnected from God. I want to pursue my own way of life. And the other, I need to be connected to the living God to give me life and breath and everything. This is the war going on for your soul. Another thing that you need to know about this war is that it has eternal implications. You see, people last forever. The soul lasts forever. And so the implications of a war won or lost over the soul means that those results at some point in time will become irreversible. That you will either win or lose, and that result will remain for all of eternity. And so when a war of the soul is lost, the person is lost forever. Guys, this life has incredible implications. And ultimately, it's as simple as this. You'll get what you want. If you want a life connected with God, depending on him for everything, him being the source of your joy, your hope, your life, then that is what you will receive. Knock and the door will be open to you. But if you want a life apart from God, if you want nothing to do with him, then that is also what you'll get, a life separated from him, from all eternity. Guys, this is a big deal. A war on the soul is no joke. And Jesus has these famous words from the book of Matthew. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Jesus knew that there was something going on deep inside of each of us 
this desire to have everything that the world might offer. But Jesus knows our deepest desire to be connected to the source of life. If you lose your soul, what gain could you possibly have? There's no winning if you abandon the very thing that gives you life itself. Okay, if this is how significant the war on your soul is, is anybody here thinking, like, why is nobody talking about this? Why is nobody, why is there no news media covering this war, the war on your soul? Why is there no newspaper column saying this is how you can win the war of your soul so that you have eternal peace? Why is there nobody plugging Instagram ads saying, hey, there's a war going on? Do you know it? Why are there no commercials interrupting the Golden Bachelor tonight about the war on your soul? Why is nobody talking about this? If it is such a huge deal. And there's plenty of advice out there, isn't there? Plenty of inputs coming in on how to win the war on acne. How to win the war over dandelions. How to win the war over obesity and loneliness and student debt. So much advice on how to win little wars. Are dandelions seriously your main problem? Kind of felt like my main problem this last summer. I was dealing with weeds in my yard. Guys, there is a real battle going on. And there are real consequences. What does it profit you to win thousands of mini battles but lose your soul? There's... There's a massive war that needs your attention. It needs to be addressed. You're surrounded by advice about the inconsequential, surrounded by like a wartime mentality for things that are going to be here one day and gone tomorrow. But 1 Peter 2 is bringing to our attention a war that is far more important than that. But here's the third tricky thing about this war, is that you're fighting on foreign soil. You're fighting on enemy ground. Look back at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Here's what he's saying. There's a war happening but it's happening to you as someone who's on foreign soil. You're not at home. You don't have home field advantage right now. Surrounded by a world that wants you to lose. And so where are you going to go to get the resources to win? Because if you're on foreign soil, you do not have the resources that you need to win this war. You're far from home. You need help from home. You need backup. You need reinforcements. You need an aerial strike from the home base. So where are we from? That would be helpful to know. If we're on foreign soil now, where are we from? Guys, way, way back, deep in the ancestry Way back in the family tree, like 
great, 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 great grandfather, way more grace than that, was walking with God. Adam and Eve in the garden, dwelling with God. This is the way it was supposed to be. You could walk with him. You could listen to him. You could embrace him. You could hear his advice on where to plant this tree and where to eat. You had intimacy with God. He was a friend. He wasn't some far-out concept or idea. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, this idea that we've got passions of the flesh waging war, we are far from home. And now we're fighting a war that I don't know we can win on our own. We need resources from where? The home base. Guys, think about this. I've heard it said that prayer is like a walkie-talkie to the commander-in-chief. That we can actually connect ourselves to the source of life. We can talk to the commander. We can actually engage with home base to fill us up with the, spirit, the spiritual firepower to go about our battles each and every day. If we're in a war that we can't win because we don't have the right resources, then when you're spending time with God, spending time opening up his word and hearing what he has to say, Guys, I am all about coloring pencils in your Bible and drawing flowers next to verses to make sure that it's like fun and exciting. But what if we thought about time with God as a war strategy meeting? God filling us up with faith to fight our battles that day. Wouldn't that be more exciting? Wouldn't we be stoked to just open up the word and see what God has for us? to charge us up and get us ready to take one step forward into the battlefield. Man, I think that would be awesome. We could be charged up with faith knowing that the presence of God is with us. And if that's true about us, if we're filling ourselves with faith, the spiritual firepower, then our sin does not stand a chance. Our sin does not stand a chance if we are filled with the Spirit. Time with God is not time wasted. It is beautifully powerful because it connects us to home. It's like a walkie-talkie to the commander. The soul war. The biggest things that we need to know about it is that you're in a constant battle with the thought that you can be your own God. This is what's waging war against you, that it has eternal implications and that you cannot win this war by yourself. You've got to have reinforcements. If this is the soul war that's going on right now, does anybody feel like, yikes, I don't think that I'm cut out for this. How am I going to win this war Seems like something that's a little bit beyond me. Seems a little bit too difficult. I want to tell you about the decisive victory of this war. 
there's a concept that's been really encouraging to me lately, and it's the idea that the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. You say, Austin, what's the difference between good advice and good news? I want to do a little bit of a word breakdown real quick. I love these. Okay, on the screen, you're going to see this. The gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. Okay, if you look at that word, do you see how there's the word angel in the middle of it? Guys, this is not a coincidence. This is amazing. Did you know that the actual word angel means herald, like messenger, like bringer of news? Did you know that? This is amazing. Think about this. People in ancient times, how did they hear about a global event? They didn't have social media. They did not have the news at five. They did not have the printing press. They couldn't even release newspapers. How did they hear about a global event? They had somebody called a herald. So if there was a war going on in a far country, and the village was wondering, hey, what's our fate? Are we going to be conquered by some other country? The herald would report to the general. He would go out into this, into this village. The village would all gather together, and then the herald would speak at the town square, and he would pronounce, victory. And the whole town would go home in joy, knowing that they were not to be conquered. The herald would then go on to the next town to deliver the news. This is how stuff traveled back then. Guys, baked into the language of the gospel is the news media, is the bringer of good news. The essence of the Christian message is that it is something that has already happened. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. First and foremost, it is something that has happened to you, for you, outside of you. Something that has happened in the past tense, that Jesus died for sin and rose victoriously. That's the essence of the Christian message. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you guys see how he suffered once for sins? That already happened. And that he would bring us to God. This is the primary message of the gospel, that it's not good, good advice, but it's good news. This is the thing that separates Christianity from any other philosophy or religion. Others will say how to get to God. You've got to do this, do this, do this. That's good advice. But the good news of Jesus says, I've done it for you. I've paid the penalty. Welcome. You can come freely. The war against sin has been won. The war against death has been won. But the interesting thing is if we were to go on a campus and ask maybe any random person, hey, what do you say is the essence of the Christian message? They might say, my guess would be they would say something like, 
live like Jesus, love God, love people, treat them how you want to be treated. Something like the golden rule, right? But that is not the essence of the Christian message because that's good advice. Now, don't get me wrong. That is a fantastic idea. We should for sure do that. Live like Jesus. Love God. Love people. Absolutely. But that's not the essence. Guys, the only way that we're going to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves is if God has first loved us. So that that is an overflow of love. It does not start with me. It starts with God. That's the essence of the Christian message. If you were to ask them, okay, if it is, if it is the former, if it is, hey, the gospel is live like Jesus, love people well, love God well, here are the three things, the three reactions that they would give. You would you'd either have one, Ah, I already kind of knew that, whatever, and they would shrug a little bit. Or you'd have two, I can't do that, man, that's a little too hard. Or three, I'm already doing that, I'm living a great life, right? You'd either have somebody who shrugs, somebody who's bugged, or somebody who's smug. I got that from Tim Keller, that wasn't me, I was just going to see if you guys liked it. I thought it was kind of catchy. Shrug, bugged, or smug. Why is that the response? Because it's not good news. It doesn't totally change somebody from the inside out. The good news of the gospel is that God would pay the penalty for you in Jesus, that he would raise him from the dead three days later, and now, by his spirit in you, give you the power to fight sin, to beat death, to win the war. So my question for you tonight is incredibly simple. Who are you relying on to win the war? Are you relying on yourself? Are you relying on your own religious attendance? Your own moral standing? Are you relying on your ability to be good enough? Or are you relying on Jesus? And his victory. It reminds me of a story that I heard not too long ago by a man named Alistair Begg. And he brings up this question. He says, if you were to die tomorrow and you were to go before the gates of heaven, like what would you say? Why should you be let in? Why should they let you enjoy paradise with God forever? If you answer that in the first person, then we've immediately gone wrong. If any of us answer that starting with, because I, we've gone wrong. Because I believed. Because I have faith. Because I fought the fight. Now the only appropriate answer is in the third person. Because he, because he purchased eternal life for me. Because Jesus won and gave it to me. Have you guys ever heard the story of the, the thief on the cross? So I don't know if you knew this, but when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, there was actually two other thieves being crucified next to him, one on either side. 
And it's such an interesting story because one of the thieves, after they had been cursing him out, actually looks at Jesus and says, remember me. And Jesus looks back at him and says, today, surely today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that crazy? Today. What did he do? He was a thief. This guy was probably a good enough thief that he stole a bunch of stuff. They wanted him dead, but not quite good enough because they were able to get him. But he was on the cross. He was a thief his whole life. Hadn't been to a church service. Hadn't been to a Bible study. Didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet he made it. He made it. How did he make it? That's probably what, like, the angels at the gates of heaven were asking him about. Like, how'd you get here, dude? How'd you get here? How, how did you make it? He's like, I don't know. Let, let me go get my supervisor angel. The supervisor comes back. He's like, okay, sir, I've got a couple questions for you. Are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? He's like, no, dude, I've never heard of that before. Okay. How about the doctrine of Scripture? Where do you stand on the authority of Scripture? He's like, I've never heard that in my entire life. He's like, okay. And then kind of like frustrated as he asks him, on what basis are you here? And the man replied, because the man on the middle cross said I could come. Guys, that's as simple as this is. The beautifully simple invitation of the gospel is that it's just Jesus saying, come. He's done all the work. He's won the war. You can come. Man, it's so cool. It's not good advice. It's good news. I need that. I need that today. Do you need that? Who are you trusting in to win the war? Guys, the application of good news is twofold. A little R&R, rest and responsibility. First, you get rest from this good news. You have total security. Complete confidence. That no matter what, they cannot take this away from you. Nobody can take this away from you. That you have won the war because Jesus gave it to you. And when somebody wins the soul war, the effects are permanent, right? Jesus has won the soul war. The effects are permanent. Nobody can take that away from you. You can rest. You can have peace knowing that the war has been won. But you also have a responsibility, right? Opportunity to leverage the rest of your life to tell others about the good news. To let them know, hey, anybody can get in on this. What would it look like to spend the rest of your life leveraging your life for this good news? That anybody can come in and enjoy God. I want you to remember that source of that word, gospel, right? Euangelion, it means herald. Good news. Guys, if the war has been won, if Jesus has achieved what we could not, a decisive victory over sin and death, 
And there is a world waiting for good news. There is a world waiting to hear, can somebody win the war for me? I don't think I can do it myself. If a world is waiting and we have that good news, what's the job left for us? To go. To be a herald. A bringer of good news. Look at what chapter 2 verse 9 talks about. Peter says, but you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen you to be the people to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim the good news that God has brought you out of darkness and into light. He chose you. You are his plan A to bring good news to people, just waiting, just ready to rejoice in a victory. We got to tell everybody. We got to tell everybody, can you imagine with me the heralds of old? An ancient little village waiting on the outskirts of a country, knowing that they're just, they're just waiting for the herald to come in and let them know what happened with the war. Knowing that the result would be indicative of the pattern of the rest of their life. Would they have to be conquered, or would they have victory? They'd be waiting patiently, but eagerly. Can you imagine when they would see far off the herald running in, maybe on his horse, ready to enter in the town? He'd have to scurry through a group of people because the whole town was gathered just to hear this one man speak. And imagine the words coming out of his mouth, victory, you're free. Imagine the, the sound of rejoicing, the smiles, the shouts that would come from that town. Imagine the joy in that city. Salt Company, this is the vision for the University of Minnesota, for the whole city of Minneapolis, for all the United States, for the globe to hear the good news, victory. Jesus has won, and now you win. Would you come to him? Imagine the joy in that place of people that have been waiting for the one to win the war. Man, I'm so excited to be able to rejoice with brothers and sisters who have been waiting for victory. Jesus has brought it. Let's tell everybody. Let's tell everybody. The gospel of Jesus is the message that finally brings joy to the city because it finally gives us rest from the battle that we couldn't win ourselves. It's good news. So I'll ask you just one more time. Who are you trusting in to win the war? You can't do it yourself. Would you trust in Jesus? Let's pray to him together. God, thank you that your gospel is good news. 
Thank you so much for earning the victory, for conquering sin in the flesh. God, there's so many thoughts and feelings that wage war on us day in and day out. We need your help, but Father, thank you that the war has already been won, that you went before us. Before we even knew we had to fight, God, that you earned the victory for us. You are undefeated, Lord. And so we simply stand amazed that you would so freely give us the gift of eternal life to an undeserving people. God, nothing about the way that we have lived is deserving of your love, but you give it anyway. So would you just help us respond rightly to the gospel now, God? Help us to plant deep roots of faith so that even when it feels like we're losing, that you remind us of Christ's victory. That you help us remember what you've done for us. Give us eyes of faith to see opportunities to share this good news with others. But more importantly, right now, God, I just pray for your presence to be strong. Would we rejoice now in the good news of the gospel? Would we sing loudly of your love for us? And would you be made much of in our hearts tonight, God? Help us trust you. Help us praise you. You deserve it, Lord. You deserve it. Pray this in your name. Amen.